My husband had a magical cape. He would wear it with arms outstretched as he walked around, and into it he would sweep anyone in his path, bewitching them with the kind of intoxicating power that would make us believe he was heroic, invincible, and capable of anything. We were bedazzled, and anything seemed possible. My closest friends know that living with a larger-than-life wizard could be irritating. There was never a life lesson because the plane would always wait, the phone would always be returned, the keys would always be found, and we would always forgive him. I called it the magic of Ben and went along for the ride. Well, that's the beginning of one of my favourite eulogies, the beautiful and emotion-charged My Husband Had a Magical Cape delivered by Lara Carey, who's our guest in this episode of Speak Ola, and they were delivered in the aftermath of her husband Ben Cowan's tragic death on the 8th of January 2016. I was told about this speech by the footy journalist, sports journo Ash Brown, a friend of Lara Carey's. He was in the cemetery the day that this was delivered, And he rang me actually on the day to say that he just heard an incredible speech, one that he'll never forget. And over the next week or two, I chased it up with Lara and she was good enough to allow me to put it on Speak Ola. And now these years later, I think it's nearly eight years later, Lara's coming on the podcast to talk about that that, that terrible time and the act of writing those words and delivering them and remembering Ben and telling the stories of Ben. So that's coming up in a moment. On the Speak Ola side of things, I would love you to join the mailing list, the newsletter. It is news.speakola.com. You can sign up for free. You can pay. And there are just over 100 people who do pay. I'm very grateful to them. This is not a lucrative enterprise. I think I make under $5,000 a year from it. So really, if you can throw in 50 bucks at news.speakola.com, be incredibly grateful. Or you might become a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash speakola. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Tony Wilson. Hi, Lara. Thanks so much for joining me. It's lovely to meet you in person. Uh, I received your speech from a friend of mine a few years ago, and he said, I've heard this speech. It's one of the most beautiful and great eulogies I've ever heard. You need to put it on Speakola. And the moment I read it, I knew that I had to as well. So thanks for joining us, Lara. Thanks for having me, Tony. So 
Look, this is an ultimately sad speech and a sad episode to talk about, but I thought I'd start with the happy side of things. Um, one thing that comes out in your eulogy for Ben Cowan is, I guess, the light of this personality and the richness of your relationship. So can you take us back? I love a how, you, how we met story. Can you take us back to how we met, how we fell in love? Well, we met 10 years before we got together. Um, We were set up by... So I was a journalist at the time and we had a couple of friends in common. And we went out for dinner, four of us, and I thought he was awful. (laughs) Um, He was, you know, kind of attention-seeking and overbearing and was not interested at all. Um, And 10 years later, our paths crossed again and I was more interested. But it was actually, it was funny because at the time I sort of went for the broody, uh, you know, I was dating a a broody German mathematician who was here doing a PhD on weather patterns. Ben is the complete opposite to that. And when that relationship broke up and he sort of saw a moment and asked me out, um, well, he didn't. He asked me to come to a group that was going to the theatre and it ended up not being a group. It was the two of us. So that was... um, And I kind of got to know him and had to be convinced because at the beginning, and this definitely changed during the marriage, but he was known as Perfect Ben. PB, we called him. He was like perfect on paper and I thought it was just too obvious. He was too obvious a choice. But Ben had a very strong way of what I used to call foisting. So making people do what he wanted them to do. And this was a real theme of his life. And when he got his mitts into an idea, there was no shaking him out of it. Well, the way that he's painted in the eulogy, I mean, he, he sounds like almost the ultimate extrovert, a, a guy who watches a movie and and has to speak in the in the in the accent for the rest of the night, and someone who organises everything, who's in you know the light of the party, uh, and and so that sort of personality, as you say, if you if you're sort of looking, if you're dating Kurt Cobain, it's a big step, <laughs> isn't it, to sort of be suddenly dating Robin Williams? <laughs> very, very much so. He had loud shirts. He had, you know, he was the person you did not ignore um, in any situation. And even at the beginning, we started dating, and I got invited to a friend's wedding very early on in Venice. And I said to him, "Look, I'm going to go, and I'm just going to attend the wedding. So, you know, I'm just letting you know, I'm going to be gone for five days." And he said, oh, I'll come with you. I had not invited him. The relationship was not at that point. And I sort of said, look, you know what, it's probably not worth it. And then within two hours into my inbox arrives a Excel spreadsheet. And he was very known for his Excel spreadsheets, but I didn't know this yet. With three options of holidays that included Prague, Florence, you know, it was like building this whole thing around this wedding. And at the bottom added up the clear days that were available for each option. And I was furious. But I tell you, after the fury and venting to my friends, we bloody ended up doing it. (laughs) And so there was a sort of a presumptiveness to him, a confidence to him. And and that Followed him. I mean, he was ex- extremely successful in business. He he started the Anaconda la- label. Is he that right? He did. He did the stores. And again, that was just a force of will. He just decided this was where he wanted to. You know, and he convinced the investors to put the money in. He, you know, the concept. And he was very annoying for someone who works in marketing, where he'd come up with all the ad campaigns. And it was like just stick to finance. But he had in his mind what it should all look like. Micromanaged everything. 
and an outdoors guy. So he took the kids and you, apparently you went all around the world and obviously that job would have demanded an outdoorsy sort of lifestyle. So this was his thing. It was. He loved camping, loved adventure. I was not a camping aficionado and I was very glad that I was very upfront about that at the beginning. But his thing was, right, what's going to make you love it? What don't you love about it? And like, I need good coffee. Okay, so when we went camping, I would stay in my sleeping bag and he would make the fire and bring me a coffee. So he just, you know, he was the kind of guy that just every obstacle was somehow kind of gotten rid of in his path. I mean, the same with the travel. We, He just... Well, we agreed we wanted to have adventure travel, but recently at a Celebration of Life event that we have every year, um, one of our friends was retelling the story of our visit to them. Um, So our friend was the High Commissioner in India and we stayed with them at the High Commission and after that we were going on to Kashmir at a time where everybody was told not to go and Natalie was telling the story of when we arrived there her husband Patrick, who was the High Commissioner, was saying, can't you go somewhere else? You're going to be my problem to get you out if anything happens. And Ben just wouldn't be dissuaded. And it was a great holiday. We weren't in trouble in the end. And, and so he's a guy who's a risk taker and an adventurer. And I guess I'll ask you just to tell us what happened on what's I'm sure is the worst day of your life, but it's the 8th of January 2017. Can, can you tell us about this terrible day? Well... The day started, so this was my last day. We have a, a, a beach house um, on the Great Ocean Road and we'd been down there on holiday and had this absolutely idyllic kind of couple of weeks with the kids but lots of friends that we hadn't seen for a long time visiting. And it was the end of that period and he had decided to stay on for another uh, couple of days with the kids. I had to come back to work. And this was new for us. Him staying at the beach house with our kids was hadn't happened before. Um, so I was quite anxious that that afternoon I had to get on the road. Ben um, was a paraglider, um, so I'd bought him a, a lesson actually some years before, which he loved so much that he converted it into getting his licence. Um, so this wasn't new. He had experience. And the thing with paragliding is that when you land on the beach, um, when the wind is, so it's always got to be an onshore wind, you need to be collected because, as he used to describe it, the paraglide, the glider itself would be like dragging 200 kilos of wet washing. Um, and so someone would have to pick you up because you couldn't walk back to the house or anything. So this was the last day that he could go gliding. So we went to the local pool with the kids and he wasn't even that kind of inclined to go. And I just said, look, this is your last opportunity. But I was very anxious that he gets back in time because I had to pack the car. I had to get back to Melbourne. I had to get ready for work the next day. And so my last words were just make sure you're back on time because he never was on time. Um, so I was at the pool with the kids. And then we got a phone call from uh, one of our friends who said he, that he'd landed badly and was being airlifted to the hospital. And my thought at that time was, oh, damn it, now I've got to go to the hospital and I'm not going to be able to get to work and what am I going to do with the kids? It was all the logistics of all of that because I'd been told that he was just injured. Um, but being someone who does deal with crisis a lot, I always go to the worst place as well. So I'm like, okay, you know, after that thought was, well, hang on, what if this is really bad? But to me, really bad at that moment meant what if he ends up in a wheelchair or like I couldn't imagine this man not being active anymore. So it was kind of getting the kids out of the pool and kind of all the activity of just trying to get... And the kids were 
um, had thought he'd been in a car accident. When they heard that it was a paragliding accident, no one was that worried. So we drove back and I had a friend with me and by the time um, our house was quite close to where he'd landed. So um, I took the kids back to the house and then went down. I got dropped at the beach by a friend and I had to sort of get to where he was and he'd landed on a cliff top near anyone who knows the area, the Aries Inlet um, Lighthouse. So it was on sort of close between sort of on the beachfront. And as I got down a car and I was running to get to him and a surf lifesaver came and picked me up and didn't say anything on the way. And that was my first real thought other than this growing feeling that something was really wrong. So I had to get to that. So he dropped me at this cliff top and I had to clamber up the cliff top and at the top was my husband lying there, um, not responsive, and everybody working on him. He flew with um, one of our close friends who, was an, who had a, a house right across from us who's an anaesthetist, and so my first thought is he'll be fine because Scott's working on him, and it was inconceivable that anything would actually happen to Ben. I mean, you know, he'd get injured, he, you know, but the idea, you know, he looked fine. He looked like he was unconscious anyway he hadn't been responsive for some time and I was very anxious that the um the that he should be airlifted to the hospital and somebody explained to me on that cliff top that they weren't going to do that until mm. he actually responded and there were police there and people were asking questions and I've heard this from a lot of people now since but you do have that sense of this is not happening to me and in the same moment you think but who who deserves it who does this happen to who's ready for this yeah but it takes a long time for your brain to catch up and at some point the tide was coming in, they needed to get him out of there and they stopped working on him and he was gone and I got a minute to sit with him, um, kind of say goodbye but and then go to the house and you're in shock and he was taken away. I don't even know where, I didn't even ask where at that moment. I just had to go to my house and tell my kids. <sighs> And part of the unimaginable stress of this and that, that conversation, you know, I, I can't even imagine. But the what you had in front of you, I understand because Ben's Jewish, I presume you're Jewish as well. Yes, There's sir. such tight timelines, if we're going to look at this amazing eulogy, that you uh, that everything clicks into gear in, in the Jewish faith, doesn't it? The things yes. move very fast after someone dies that, that you don't sort of – put a, a funeral two weeks down the track it's That's it's right. like two days isn't it yes but there was going to be an autopsy um and that was expedited uh but still he had to be brought back and there was the autopsy and the body had to be released so we were trying to work as quickly as we could but also not forgetting for me <laughs> the delay was kind of a, a relief in the sense that there were a whole lot of people that I wanted there everybody was away I mean, this was the middle of summer holidays, you know, the beginning of January. And his best friend literally had just landed in LA with his family on a holiday. They put his mother-in-law on a plane to meet the kids and his wife while he literally turned around and came back. People were scrambling to get on aeroplanes to get back. It was chaotic. So any days that I had to sort of have the people who needed to be there and needed and to understand what was going on were important, but we were racing against the clock. And and so 
he was also, a, I guess, a, a, a close to a public figure. This story's in the papers and all that sort of thing. And people know Ben Cowan from from Anaconda, and, and he's. And his grandfather's significant... His father. His, his father. father was the Governor-General of Australia. So, yeah, we yeah. made the front page of some of the papers and it was, it was, it was a big news story that day. And so you've, you now talk to people who are in crisis and teach them how to deal with crisis. Was, was, was there any coping on your behalf at this time or is this not a period you necessarily remember very well or is it all very clear? It is. It's clear in weird ways. So... <laughs> You know, you, you don't have a sense of, in that moment, you don't have a sense of what comes next. I guess that's the thing. So when so I do a lot of crisis management uh, in a, a PR sense. So someone's in crisis and they need their reputation taken care of. And what happens is they are shell-shocked. This is the worst day of their life. They can never, you know, how is this going to come out of it? They don't want to speak. They don't want to do anything. Having someone there to take over and say, this is what you're going to do now is a relief. And it's an interesting relationship for me with clients because mostly I haven't met them before. So they're referred to me through lawyers or there's somebody who said, this is the person who will help you. And you kind of go, trust me, this is what you're going to do now. And I'm going to do this for you. And they're just grateful. And you get them to a point where you go, right, you've stopped bleeding, go back to your life. Sometimes it's a bit longer. Sometimes the fallout is bad, but at least that moment's done. So with this, um, firstly, my sister took over my life, which was amazing. She took my phone, she took my computer. And I kind of, at the beginning, it's like this sense of, so I remember going, I mean, being at the house after I'd told my children and she, my, and I made the calls that I had to make, his sister, my sister. I think this, the third call or the second call was actually the person who was running, my, who was the general manager of my business, who was still going to be on holiday for another week. And I rang and she said, what do you need me to do? And I said, I don't know, just do whatever needs to be done. I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. And I started packing the house like I had every time at the end of summer. And our friend who had called me about the accident came and he said, La, just stop. And I was like, but what am I going to do? I needed to do something and I needed to do something that sort of felt in control and normal because suddenly it was like I don't I don't know what I meant someone has to give me instructions here and so we even drove home and it was late and you know I'd been dealing with the kids and sort of put them to bed and and I'm wandering the house not knowing what to do with myself yeah. but Judaism's great like that because there's a real process to grief and to burial and to funerals and to what to do and so those days that I had to wait usually you're right it's the burial within 24 hours I didn't get that I had a few days where people are coming over and you've sort of got this you know the I can't believe it happened and you're sort of comforting people in a way and there's all of that kind of um, you know this is like I'm in some bad film that I haven't scripted but that's that sort of plunge to the centre of the earth piece where you're just surrounded by darkness. You do not know which way is up. You have no idea what's just happened to your life. Um, and that's, that's that immediate blast. And then there's the struggle to find which way is out. And how old were your kids at this time? So my son was 13 and my twin daughters were 12. And was there a, you know, was there a big 
funeral a big what what's the ceremony called um, is, yeah, it, no, is it's it called a funeral, a funeral? yeah so and there, even that was sort of for me slightly complicated so ben has two brothers who are very religious we're not and his sister's not but the two brothers one lives in israel and one lives in australia and I'm not going to bore you with all of the detail, but there was a whole lot of accommodation that was required. And it wasn't really what, what was our life, but it was like, how do I make this work so that I don't alienate anybody, that I'm respectful of everybody's kind of customs? And so what ended up happening was um, to, and to accommodate the size of the crowd. I mean, there were people out the door, thousands of people at you know, sort of this funeral, or hundreds I mean, the, the, the synagogue was absolutely crammed full, but the coffin had to be outside to accommodate my brother-in-law and his family, which is kind of, you know, weird where you walk past it on the way in and past it on the way out. And then there was another um, where I delivered the eulogy was actually graveside as well. And that was sort of the cemetery was kind of completely overflowing to the point where when I went back to visit his grave a month later on our anniversary... I didn't actually recognise the place. It looked so different with sort of no one there. So there's literally hundreds of people at the at the burial site and yeah. that's where you gave this incredible speech. And yeah. and so, I mean, you've worked with words. You've been a journalist and you now work, as you say, in PR and crisis management. But this is a, what I was struck by when I was showing this speech was just how beautifully constructed it was, how how amazing the sentences were even really from the very first line my husband had a magical cape um can you talk through the process of having to write this in the worst days of your life and 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 coming up with that opening motif i think that um Fundamentally, I'm a storyteller and a writer. But what I struggled with, so the night before, I'd asked each of the kids to sort of write a message that if they wanted to put either read it or put it into um, the uh, bury it with their father. And I thought to myself, what I had experienced over the last few days was people in such pain, but everybody wanted to do something. And unfortunately, what that ended up being was like bringing a lot of food, which we weren't eating, and I didn't want the food. But I did start to think about, well, what is the only comfort that I can provide? Everybody sort of knew who Ben was, obviously, and he had such a huge impact. And this was such a shock. I mean, I just can't overstate how full of life he was, how strong he was, how invincible he was as a a personality. And so for him to be gone was like, how is this void going to be filled and what do we need? And I suddenly felt like the need for a whole lot of things and the kids. And so I wanted the eulogy to be a call to arms, like this is what you can do for us. And so it became a story about Ben but what he, what we had all lost, and what needed to now be filled. Yeah, and the did the there must have been such a feeling about this hang gliding thing where you so you gave him the the lesson, and I don't know where people reconstruct what could have happened, should have happened. I'm sure every every grieving spouse does that, but you went sort of headlong into that image, I guess, of the magical cape that he needed in the moment which failed him um was that was that your way of addressing this same thing saying i'm going to talk about the way he died in quite a in metaphoric and and beautiful way it was partly that but it was also the magic that surrounded him it was like he and so look that i didn't know this at the time that i wrote this but he needed two more seconds 
that's what the autopsy showed. Two more seconds for this thing to reinflate because it needed three seconds. And it was a gust of wind. And one of the, the epitaph that sits on his uh, grave is he was taken too soon by a gust of wind. And so it was that kind of, you know, subliminal kind of imagery. But actually, you know, it was practically sort of who he was. He just Im- embodied this kind of... There was this sort of defying the rules of, I guess, even, you know, protocol about Ben. So this idea that he just did things his way and he had this sort of persona and spirit and, and, it, and he was sort of engulfed in this sort of magic. So it was the way that I could explain it. Yeah, and, and, he, and that's the next paragraphs are that, they are the sort of the superhero element of him. Yeah. The, the, I mentioned, you know, the, the accents and the... Like, he's, he really does sound like the most fun dad ever, you know, yeah. in the sense of his participation in storytelling and, and I think you mentioned the soft toys for one of your daughters that he would create... The, the yeah. adventure stories for those toys and you know he sounds like for a businessman he sounds like he's you know an author and <laughs> and and, a, and an imagineer as well I mean it's, it's incredible that's this next little bit yeah he even I mean even as a businessman I mean he worked in mergers and acquisitions like and he was brilliant at finance he had a numerical literacy that was off the cha- off the charts but he would, for instance, um, when he was in the middle of a deal with clients, instead of taking them out for lunch, he would invite them to his office and make them lunch, create a salad. He actually, uh, he had an office which deliberately had a balcony with a barbecue so that he could do barbecue and they just loved him for it. So everything he did, he did a bit differently and, you know, would blend the work life, the social life, you know, clients became friends you know, friends became clients. It was all, all of it was just about sort of just doing things on his terms. He didn't really care what kind of, you know, normal society did, I think. And then this, the next part, you mentioned it, you flagged it as the purpose of speaking. And it's the Ben's army part yeah. of the speech where you're, it's a call to arms. It's asking all the people, these hundreds or even thousands of people that are attending the funeral and and have been the people providing the food and the bagels and the asking to help and you've said well you can yep um, you can join Ben's army and it's it's a really memorable few paragraphs I might even just read the start of it if you don't mind um You've all reached out to me in sympathy, in shock, in confusion, in denial and grief and loss and pain. We all stand here together, bound by this bottomless pit of hopelessness. And you all keep saying, let me know what I can do. So I will tell you, I am recruiting you all into Ben's army and here are your instructions. And you give them their manifesto and you say, this child needs this and this child needs this and this child needs that. Can you talk about constructing that part of the speech? Is this where you went to your children and asked what they'd like to say or is this your own words? No, these were my own words. They were in they each they each reacted in a in a different way from each other, but as a whole my children were completely broken. Um, and I looked at, I mean, apart from being able to explain what kind of father he was, because I think that was the evocation in, in that part of the speech, but it was also like sort of what they now needed, what were they missing? And so it was what I knew, what the relationship that each of them had with their father and how that played out in our lives. Because I think people do, this is a common, uh, something that happens, uh, you know, they go, how are the kids? 
that's three different answers. And you so you put it under the catch-all of, well, you know, they're coping as best they can or, you know, they're coming to terms with it or something. But in truth, three different little people who were becoming, you know, teenagers who was a very pivotal part of their lives and, um, you know, lost someone with whom they had a very individual relationship each. And so really the answer would go for hours on each exactly. child. <laughs> exactly. But that's why I, I individually, like, identified their own needs as, yeah. you know, sort of like if anyone has these skills, these are the things I'm looking for. And And you mentioned for your son, I think it was taking him to the footy and playing FIFA and helping him with his interest in music and these sort of things were all itemised and for one daughter I, th- I think she sounded like she was very intelligent and into reading interesting philosophers and historians yep. and, that, and you asked for participation in that and then there was the other daughter who's who you'd mentioned the soft toys and the storytelling and yep. the friendship and the love and care and you know, it's a series of, of lovely observations about your own children, but also um, a lovely a, a way of talking about Ben's participation in each of in each of their lives. lives and it, it slays me actually reading it. It's beautiful. Um, and then there's a section on yourself, what you're going to need, and um, and so what, talk about that. Like, what did, what did you ask for? And and now reading it, the speech seven years later, um, or six years later, how does it feel? Does it feel like you were asking for the right things and um, would you still put it that way or is in fact the needs much much sort of different as things unfolded? That's a tough question and well, a double-barrelled <laughs> one but I think that, um, I mean it's interesting because even on the kid part of it, you know, they change so much. So I look now and I think, gosh, did anyone keep up with the journey because where they were nearly seven years ago, you know, it was so different to where they are now and, and, and what happened in between, you know, was, was hard. it was a hard brief when I look at it, actually. Um, and the same thing, I think, for me, it's been interesting who stayed around and who hasn't and who, you know, some of it I had to learn to do on my own. There were people who really, who, who let down his memory and who let me down in not turning up, who you would have expected, but then other people who were amazing. So one of the things that I had absolutely no understanding of, just by the way that I said, when did I become a Stepford wife? But I did none of the finances of our own lives, even though I ran my own business and I'm on boards and I'm savvy financially. I think we just, you know, divided and conquered. So I did the kind of school stuff and he did the... the, And he was so clever financially. So consequently, I was left with... And we'd moved into a new house sort of three months before the accident. I didn't really know where anything stood. And and there was a person that when we had discussed occasionally, I'd gone, oh, gosh, you know, something happened to you. I wouldn't know what I was going... what, What would I do? You know, he said, you take it all to this person and... In the end, it was a big lesson because it was very early on and this person didn't turn up, like let me mm. down in a huge way. But what it was was me going, right, i got to learn this stuff. So in that sense, there were those lessons. But on the other hand, people turned up in amazing ways, which I you know, wouldn't have expected. There was always somebody to kind of be there, particularly for the first year. And I think the legacy piece of that you know, you, you learn new skills and people do get a little bit um, tired of, 
you know, the, the sympathy piece and the when are you going to move on piece and the it's enough already piece, you know. Yeah. So, so there is some of that. But I've been lucky because there's always those who miss him as much as I do, particularly his a couple of his closest, closest friends who've become very close friends with my son who now say, it's not because of Ben at all anymore, we have this relationship, but they're the ones that I can go, this still hurts. And they go, yeah, for me too. Yeah, and it's actually a companion speech. If people want to look it up, like Lara Carey's on Speak Hola twice and the other speech is the one delivered a year after the eulogy. Again, I think it's at his graveside perhaps. No, that was a celebration of life at home. Oh, was it? Yeah. And this is a beautiful speech um, as well. The house is the house is too quiet and the bed is too empty. You know, yeah. it's, that's the line I, I remember from that speech. And it's it, and, and it really encapsulates what you're talking about here, which is the the pace of recovery. You know, that that and I think it even might have been your children who said to you at some point, "We need you. We can't lose you as well." Can you can you tell us yeah. about that? Yeah, that was, I think, for a long time. Uh, so interestingly, let me tell you, this, the backstory of the thought is that Ben's best friend died 10 years before he did in a car accident with his four-year-old daughter. And his name is Matt and he was Ben's best friend all through school and the reason Ben did law was because of Matt. And, and Matt's widow, Alison, who I'm still very close with, was left without her child or her husband. Um, she wasn't in the... They were living overseas at the time. She had a high-profile job. She was, you know, and, and in, in, back in Australia giving a speech at the time that Matt, that this accident happened. Um, and, and she was very much sort of, you know, a, a sort of a guiding light in a way about, you know, w- what happens, you know, how do you get through this and what is the trajectory and this kind of idea of the pace of recovery or is it recovery but for me I had my kids that I had to get up for and literally for the first months that was all I was doing I was just going I've got to get out of bed because these these three need me I have to make sure that life goes on for them and at some point um, Charlie asked me will you ever when will you be happy again I couldn't answer her I said I don't know it's going to take a long time and she said and they all said and they're a pretty formidable group, even at that age they were, when they grouped together. And they said, we feel like we've lost you too. We know he's gone, but you're not here. Mm. Um, and we need you back. We need you to be happy. So it was kind of this quest for how do I do that? You know, it was a big ask. <laughs> and so... Well, it sounds like you went to Africa or kind of... Yeah, we safari did. We Africa. And yeah. That was in the first year, wasn't it? It was at the end of the first year. He was booking that holiday. Um, we were meant to go in the middle of the year. So in the, on the day of the accident, before he left to go paragliding he was booking that that um, trip and I shelved it and it was my grief counsellor where I said you know we were supposed to be doing this she said do it I said oh, I can't do that I can't take the kids to Africa on my own and she said no I think it'd be really good for you if it was Europe or something I wouldn't say that but I think Africa will be good so mm. that was where the and the funny thing was look I thought there'll be this epiphany, it's the anniversary of the year, will be great, we're off the, you know, we're sort of off the track and something will happen because it's the end of that year and I'll be whole again and New Year's and I cried my way through Africa, <laughs> you know, not in the in eye shot of the kids but I just kept, it was, he was everywhere, he was in the sky, yeah. he was, everything was, and it was New Year's Eve that the kids went enough, we need you back and you need to find a way to be happy. 
And and so what's the for people who are listening to this thinking, oh look, I've got to deliver my husband's eulogy. They might be at the very start, yeah. you know. And we had Emily Rowe on. If anyone's interested in a, in a, an amazing interview, Emily delivered the eulogy for her husband as well, and she's she's one of the guests on Speak Hollow. If you look it up. Um, but what is? I mean, it's going to be different for everyone. But but it's it's at one year. Is there, is there a way of sort of I, I guess getting better? Well, and it's interesting listening to Emily's uh, you know discussion with you, where she says everyone says grief's very individual, but it's not. And I I I laughed out loud when I heard her say that because it's so true. I sort of I ended up landing in a couple of widows support groups through social media and I just kept seeing the same trajectory everybody kind of landed there as if they were catapulted to go, what the hell's just happened to my life how am I ever going to get through this and you get these other people going oh welcome you will this is how it goes and so people often talk about the second year being worse than the first because the first year you're so cocooned and surrounded by support and everybody understands I mean I went back to work I didn't even care anymore. You know, it was the only thing that made sense and it made no sense. It was this weird thing. And I went back to work because my kids had never come home from school and had me sitting there having been at home all day and got freaked out and went, we need you to go back to work. Mm. Um, But then going back to work was the only thing that made sense because I was like, ah, I don't need new skills here. I know what I'm doing. And then there's this funny weirdness in that space, particularly in that first year where, you know, clients would be demanding or they'd want something which and you have very bad days in that time Um, and I'd sit there and internally I'm going how can you ask this of me my husband's died don't you know you know but actually you know you're going yes fine no no whatever you want and you know you just get through and cry a lot you know you do a lot of howling in the shower I think is really that was a text that I got from another widow very early on and it was the truism you do a lot of howling in the shower but year two people are going well she's okay now um and actually what happened to me was I started dating an old friend who'd lost his wife and we were kind of brought together in this situation and it was like everyone went oh she's fine now that's okay she's moved on And I really hadn't. It was all sitting there and it was still all part of me, but I didn't talk about it as much. And I think for people listening who are in the early stages, you know, it shifts and it changes. But somebody said, it's so big at the beginning and it's not, maybe you grow around it. It doesn't really go away. You you can't say it does. You know, you've been part of it, especially where, you know, you're part of this person's life and you've suddenly got you're trying to fill two spaces and your identity, you don't even realise until they're not there how, how much your identity is part of this coupledom. You know, I, I, I reflect on a moment where I thought I was having a, a good day. We went to Friends of Ben's for dinner. We were invited to dinner with the kids. And I, and I thought I'd done this great job. I was in quite a good frame of mind and we had this fantastic dinner and we got in the car and my kids were like, what the hell happened? I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, you were awful. You were really, you know, attention-seeking and you were just criticising my behaviour and I was, and this had never happened. I was like, what do you mean? Like I thought I was funny and I was like, you know, and then when we delved into it and I was trying not to cry, thinking, God, I thought I'd gotten through this so well and then reflected on the fact that when we got home, my son kind of came up to me and he's always been very, you know, close to me, very intuitive and, and very emotionally understanding and he said... He said, Mum, you're funny, not like Dad. You're funny in your own way. You don't have to be him. And I realised that I was trying to do this duet 
and cover both parts and I yeah. didn't have to do that. And it's that realisation, how do you become your own person while holding on to the memories? You know, how, what is the legacy that you're committing to holding on to? What do you have to let go of? There are all these moments. I mean, another kind of moment that, you know, these are things people don't talk about or think about, but we had, Ben used to make bolognese in our house and and he'd freeze it. So he'd make it a big batch and the whole house would smell like bolognese and the kids loved his bolognese and he didn't cook a lot of things. This was one of his things. Yeah. And so there was the day of the last bolognese, uh. the last frozen bolognese. And Alex um, had and I talked about it and I'd taken it out to defrost and she, and, and she wasn't there when the other two sort of saw it and said, we're not ready for this, we don't want to. And I said, well, we have to eat it. Like it's... It's going to be, you know, it's going to go bad. Okay, but not today. So I put it back in the freezer and Alex came home and sees me cooking something else and says, wait, tonight was Dad's bolognese. And I said, well, the other two weren't ready. And she burst into tears, but that's what I've been looking forward to all day. Like it was this connection, like the bolognese had such huge connotations for everyone. And you go through this in the early days, every single thing is a trip mine. Uh, I'm only getting it. My best man died by suicide, I think, ten years ago this um, December, and um, and I, his name's still in my phone. I haven't done that yet, <laughs> so there you go. But um, well, you might find that someone else owns that number because I did get a call from Ben's <laughs> phone. <laughs> And it was a big shock when you're in the supermarket and your husband, who's been gone for a few years, suddenly calls you. So how does that? How did, why did they know to call you, or why would that happen? Because um, when I kind of in, was sort of cleaning up all the finances in the first year, and one of the things I had to deal with was his phone plan, which obviously I didn't need to keep paying. And I yeah. went to the telco provider and said, "But I really want to keep the messages." And they said, "Yep, yep." And then, of course, it was all gone. That's a whole nother story. But um, what happened was his number was then redeployed later. And somebody rang me going, I keep getting called. Because people would call his phone. either to, They would leave. I found out, you know, a long time later that Alex and my niece were calling his phone to leave him messages. Uh. And um, so he's like, I'm getting these calls. And someone said they were looking for Ben. Like, who is this? And I said, okay, you've run, you are... <laughs> the keeper of my late husband's phone number. So that's when I removed it from my phone. So you may want yeah, to be I'm careful right. if you ring it. <laughs> well, I will, I will. That's, that could be the impetus for me. Um, and, and Lara, you write beautifully about Ben even on anniversaries. Do the anniversaries, is, do you feel bad? I, with Daff, I sometimes feel bad about the anniversaries because I do, do make a fuss of him on anniversaries of, of when he died. And I sort of think, well, you know, is that, is that the right way to do it? Because it's a very constant thing, you know, where I like to think I'd think of him more than once a year. Do you find the anniversaries are a thing or do you, do you just sort of do that for the public or what's, what's, the, what's, what's your thinking on that? Um, so, that, well, there's two times when I usually do post for the public um, because I found at the beginning I was sort of telling people what we were going through at certain times and that made sense. Everybody... Everybody thinks of him on the death anniversary, which for my family is a really weird time because we all deal with it very differently. So, you know, what I discovered early on is losing your husband is not the same as losing your father. And so even though we're a family who's lost an important part of our family, the kids do their own thing in their own heads and we've normally tried to be away. We tried 
I think during COVID, we were down at the beach at that time and it was a disaster, disaster for all of us. And we went, okay, this is not good for any of us to be here at this time. And that at Fairhaven? At Fairhaven. So normally we try and be sort of far away. We've done sort of trips overseas. Last year, we were in, sort of the, at the last death anniversary, we were in Paris. Last time we were there was 10 years before as a family. And I, I said something to Alex, who I was sharing a room with and so remembering she's now 18 and I said to her you know you get this flood of messages of people thinking about him and thinking about us I said do you feel like this day is so significant because for me now I think about him all the time and it really sort of moments that aren't necessarily related to anything huge and specific and she said yes this is the day everything changed but we sort of are very careful with our individual feelings and pain and on that day whereas his birthday which is so weird still. Like I was always three years younger than him and now I've surpassed where he was and I have difficulty with that idea. The kids decided that that would be when we had our celebration of life. And so every year around his birthday is when as many people as want to remember him come together and tell stories and the kids love it. And people try and find new stories that the kids haven't heard before and as they've gotten older they've heard you know, the sort of colour, more colourful stories. And so they've forced us to make that joyous. They want to remember him with laughter and the stories. And it's really interesting because he had such an eclectic group of people. And this this thing, we've just had our sixth one, is getting bigger. More people saying, yes, actually, could I join? I want to. And these people who have nothing in common in their other lives who come together and, and meet other people. And it's something that's been called the benefit, where people have been doing the things that they've meant to be, you know, that that they were thinking about doing but never got around to or changing their lives in a positive way because life's too short, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But other times, um, so they're the two times that I feel like taking people on the journey. At the beginning it felt a bit self-indulgent but so many people said it's been great to understand that it doesn't just end, you know, and where you are and what the thinking is and what the new part of this grief process and, and the the legacy process and the memory process. Sometimes they're not sad, they're happy posts, but often it's just taking people on that journey. And you're trying to, or you are writing a book about it. Is, yeah. have you, is it finished? Is it in draft form or you've got a few chapters to go or is it ongoing because you want to take it to a point that you're not at yet? No, I finished it finally. So I started writing in real time at the beginning and it is the rawest, it's not a comedy, let me tell you, but it ended up being a love letter as well as a grief journey. Um, I started writing just for the catharsis of like I wasn't sleeping and I needed to sort of write about what I was experiencing and what was happening and these moments of like the Bolognese story. that They're just huge in your life at that time and they're not told because people – talk about the accident but what comes after that the aftershocks and how you know and, and and people being around and this idea of what did happen to Ben's army you know the reflections are all part of this and it finishes so my daughter's finished school last year and that was the right moment because this had been the legacy raising his kids to adulthood seemed the right moment to stop so it's in the process of the final edit I have publishers that are interested and I think I've done, you know, just it's peppered with stories of us meeting, but also stories of his life. And I think it sort of, I don't, it's a, it's a, it's a love letter and it's a grief letter. And if, if people want to be in the line, have you got like a mailing list or something so that people will know when it comes out? 
I don't, but I will let you know so yeah. that you can put it on I'll the definitely, site. I'll definitely put it on the site. But, um, <laughs> it's been these been amazing speeches and, and really popular on Speak All. I think it's such a – one of the things that the site has done is to say that great speeches aren't just Martin Luther King Jr. on the steps of the, Washington, of the Lincoln Memorial. You know, that these everyday speeches – and Ben was anything but everyday – but – someone else is facing that job this week and you know and, and what i do like about speaker ola is that we can that someone can read what someone else has done and in your case done superbly so thank you thank you Thank you, Lara Carey. Wow, what a, what a way with words she has. And I can't wait to read her book. As Lara said, we will keep you informed as to when it's coming out. So be on the Speakola mailing list, news.speakola.com. Sign up for free there. And it has been grand final week here in Australia. Two amazing footy code grand finals, both classics in AFL and NRL. And I'm an MC in that week. I usually do three or four gigs. And it reminds me that that is actually one of my jobs. So if you think I can speak well here on the podcast, I can actually speak well into all sorts of microphones and handle all sorts of guests on all sorts of topics. So if you want to get in touch with me directly, tony at tonywilson.com.au. And I do conferences, dinners, awards nights, debates, all that sort of thing. Or if you want to go through ICMI, they can take 30% of the fee, which is how it works in the great world of corporate speaking. So Tony at TonyWilson.com.au. It is Speech of the Week, and these eulogy episodes of the podcast are really popular, and they're probably the ones I get the most feedback on. The very first episode was Damien Callanan talking about humour in eulogies, um, Andrew Denton's eulogy for John Clark, I think was Ep 7. There's Nellie Thomas's eulogy for disability activists. Stella Young is just a, a great, a great episode and a, and a beautiful speech. And Emily Rowe, we mentioned her in the interview, but Emily Rowe is a grief coach. She works people through these terrible times. And it was interesting hearing that Lara had listened to that episode and and some of what Emily had said about the consistent nature of the stages of grief resonated with her. And if you want to listen to that one, it's Ep 24, Emily Rowe's eulogy for Matthew Carney. And she's called the Good Grief Coach. If you look that up, if you put that into a browser, you'll find Emily Rowe's Grief Coaching Services. But today's feature speech is as good as any of the feature eulogies that have been on so far. And it is Lara Carey speaking at her husband's gravesite in Melbourne on the 11th of January 2016. And there's no surviving audio of the speech. It's been recreated. My husband had a magical cape. He would wear it with arms outstretched as he walked around and into it he would sweep anyone in his path bewitching them with the kind of intoxicating power that would make us believe he was heroic, invincible and capable of anything. We were bedazzled and anything seemed possible. My closest friends know that living with a larger-than-life wizard could be irritating. There was never a life lesson because the plane would always wait, the phone would always be returned, the keys would always be found and we would always forgive him. 
I called it the magic of Ben and went along for the ride. I got used to him inviting random strangers he met in a queue to come for dinner, finding out the life story of his taxi drivers. I became close friends with his ex-girlfriends and agreed to take the kids to places barely back on DFAT's list. Some of you here made friends with people you didn't previously know over one of his campfires. Others got horribly drunk or worse under his influence. You hiked with him, travelled with him, flew with him and spent time at his favourite place in the world, Timbara, with him. And all the while you felt the magic and you felt good about yourself. You listened to his jokes probably more than once. You learned to recite slabs of Monty Python, The Godfather or Faulty Towers. If you ever watched a movie with him that involved an actor from another country, you had to speak in that accent for the rest of the night. We all knew him because he let everyone in. I could go on and on, and over the coming weeks, months and years, I will, because we all want to tell our stories of Ben, and nobody wants that light to be put out. So that brings me to the real reason I've chosen to speak today. You've all reached out to me in sympathy, in shock, in confusion, in denial and grief and loss and pain. We all stand here together bound by this bottomless pit of hopelessness and you all keep saying, let me know what I can do. So I will tell you, I am recruiting you all into Ben's army and here are your instructions. I need you to collect up all of your Ben Cowan stories. I need you to write them down so that when we've healed a bit, we can meet to share them with each other and our children. I need Mitch to be supported for the rest of his years into adulthood by you strong male role models. And it will take a squadron of you to fill his father's schedule of bike riding, kicking the footy, cricket on Boxing Day, footy on Anzac Day and any Carlton match. We also need volunteers for Sunday footy goal umpiring, continuing his musical education, only rockers need apply, and FIFA, cooking, camping, how to shave, and a list of other activities these two best buddies shared. But if all of that activity isn't your speed, you can volunteer for the Alex Brigade. For her, you need to be a good listener, willing to address complaints about her mother with kindness and love, a constant stream of compliments at the ready about her appearance and her brains, and a love of discussion on any topic from politics to ethics. Ben was also passing on to Alex his love and knowledge of photography, you will be challenged and exhausted, but please know that it will be worth the effort if you are adored even a tiny bit as much as Alex loves her father. Or you could sign up to the Charlie platoon, but only apply if you are gentle and kind because that is what Charlie is used to from her father. You need to have a great imagination because this job requires taking over Ben's duties relating to naming each of Charlie's 100 plus plush toys and making up animated stories using said toys, which you must call friends, and helping Charlie take care of her new puppy, Billy, who will join our family on Saturday. And for me, I need you to include me in your adventures. I need your help unravelling the complicated financial structure that Ben executed so seamlessly behind the scenes. I need you to help me plan for the future of my children and for myself to make sure I execute Ben's legacy of ensuring I am never a burden on them. I need date nights once a week, and that's where I need to hear how fabulous our children are. I need you to encourage all of my dreams. Tell me I'm the most beautiful woman in the world and mean it. And above all, remind me constantly that everything will be okay. 
Baby, I know you would have loved all of this drama and I hope you can see the enormous impact you've had on the lives of all of those you loved, worked with, became friends with and collected up under your magical cape. I cannot imagine how on earth we will go on without your powerful life force. But even in the midst of this terrible pain, I know that if I had my time again, I would do it all again exactly the same way with you. Beautiful's the right word for it. What a eulogy and what a life and a relationship and a guest. Thank you so much, Lara Carey, for coming on Speakola. I can't wait to read your book. Lara works at Narrative PR. And if you are having the worst day of your professional life and are facing a PR crisis, that's her specialty. And I can imagine that some of the events in her life have prepared her very well for getting people through crises. Her kids have also done an amazing thing. It should, didn't get mentioned in the interview, but it should be mentioned. And that is that Mitch, Charlie and Alex had the idea for a not-for-profit. I think it's particularly Charlie and Alex's project. It's called Parachute and it provides micro-grants to children who are going through trauma themselves. It might be the death of a parent it might be illness to a parent or a divorce or separation. And they provide these $500 grants to people who apply because Alex and Charlie say that, well, they say on the website that they're aware of how lucky they were in a financial sense, that the normal things in their lives could continue. But they're equally aware that if they weren't so financially fortunate, that uh, upheaval could mean total upheaval not only do you lose a parent but you lose the capacity to live your life normally and so these grants go towards continuing sporting clubs and music lessons and these sort of things and it's a it's a really lovely idea if you want to know more about parachute the website is parachute.org.au thank you to david bridey for the music thank you to mike fink for design and IT help occasionally. And thank you to you, especially if you are one of the people who is chipping in financially. News.speakola.com. You don't have to chip in financially, just join the mailing list. Or patreon.com forward slash speakola. And at the Speakola website, there's also donate buttons if you don't like membership structures, but you feel like chucking a 50 or a 100 my way and I'd also appreciate that all the best everyone speak well wherever you venture and Australians vote yes yes